All righty, so tonight we're going to talk about that lovely passage we just read, uh, Genesis 9. If you've got a Bible, you might want to crack it open there so that we can look at different verses, maybe refer to some things that weren't in the reading. Um, last week we looked at the flood itself and how the flood was a revelation of God's judgment, first of all, and really, really sobering at that. I mean, very sobering reminder of how God is the judge of all. All of our lives are in his hands. He can take them just like he gave them. And the promise is that, you know, he will take them, you know, and he will judge not just temporarily but eternally for those who persist in rebellion against him. So very sobering. But there was also in the middle of it this great revelation of how God saves sinners. Uh, he saved uh, Noah's family through the obedience of Noah. And he even saved the animals through the obedience of one man. And that's been God's pattern all the time. Saving many through the obedience of one. And right there is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The obedience of one man made many righteous. The obedience of one man set many free and gave them forgiveness and life eternal. Uh, after the flood, and we're going to pick up, yeah, in chapter 9, verse 1, but really you kind of got to back up a little bit to chapter 8, starting at verse 20. After the flood, Noah has this worship service. Um, a worship service with his family. He offers sacrifices to God, praising him for their deliverance. And it says that the smoke from those sacrifices went up to God and it was a sweet smell in his nostrils. And God promised Noah that he would never again destroy the world. Um, even though, which you can see this in chapter 8 verse 21, even though the, the people are still sinners. Okay, the flood didn't change that, right? Uh, Noah came out of the ark a sinner the way he was when he went into it. And his sons as well. Uh, doesn't mean that they weren't being saved spiritually. Uh, I think at least Noah and a few of his sons were, or two of his sons were, maybe one of them. There's a question about Ham, which we'll see in a couple of uh, weeks' time. Uh, but nevertheless, at least some of them were spiritually saved, and yet it did not change the corruption of their heart. And so God says in chapter 8, verse 21, um, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But, never, but neither will I again strike down every living creature as I've done. But as long as the earth continues, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I'm going to let the pattern of the world continue undisturbed, even though people are still wicked. This is God's patience, right? Now, what happens in chapter 9, verse 1, is God begins to move towards making a covenant with Noah. And through Noah with all creation. Now here's a question to start us. How do you repair a broken relationship? Patience. Patience. Yep. We already, we've already seen God do that. What else? Conversation. Dialogue. What's that? Seek forgiveness and grant it. When sought. Time. It takes time. One thing that, I, that I'm not hearing that I think is so critical, especially where the relationship breaks because of a breach of trust. For example, take your mind to what's going on right now in Russia and Ukraine. That's a big breach of trust, I would say, between those two countries. What would it take for those two countries to be at peace again one day? Long time from now, probably. Change of leadership. Change of leadership? Absolutely. 
Yeah, that's, that's one big thing. Reconciliation. Reconciliation, which would have to involve forgiveness. A, a, a forgiveness and a show of amends, right? Like a, a treaty, amends, you know, where uh, both sides agree, I'm going to change something. And if I don't change it, then you can not forgive me and we won't be at peace anymore. And if you don't change something, then I can not forgive you and we won't be. Like, there's got to be some kind of, usually in writing, kind of agreement. When you really have a serious breach of trust, a lot of times you need more than just words, don't you? You need cold, hard contracts and, and uh, treaties, uh, lawsuits, things of that nature. And so the reason why God doesn't just give Noah a promise, but he turns around to cut a covenant is because God is repairing a relationship, a relationship that he wants to be repaired forever. And so he adds to his word the extra added assurance that God is backing it up by his own covenant. He's swearing to it to keep certain terms. And he's calling on Noah and his family to keep other terms even though we're going to see uh, God's keeping of his side is not going to be dependent on Noah and his family's keeping of their side. So I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but let's, let's look at three things tonight. If you'll look at your bulletin, I've got them listed there. Let's talk about the covenant with Noah. First of all, in the purpose of the covenant. Secondly, the terms of it. And lastly, the sign of it. And not only will we see about Noah and that covenant, but we're going to see just in general about how God makes covenants and how we benefit from the covenants that God makes. Okay? Y'all got it? Uh, Was it clear about the difference between me just saying I'm sorry versus getting it down on paper? Right? Um, Does that make sense? The getting it down on paper, the the true swearing to it, that that is oftentimes the, the catalyst that leads to repair of a really deeply broken relationship. And God has always operated that way. He gives covenants, not just words. Covenants which he keeps. So let's first of all look at the purpose of this covenant. Uh, Starting there in verse 1, I want you to look with me at all the ways that Noah's relationship with God mirrors the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve in the beginning. It's really striking. If you'll just skim down, say, verses 1 to 3, and then maybe... Look at verse 7 as well. You'll see numerous things that are just like what God said to Adam. For example, what you got? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. What else we got? Food. I'm giving you food. Dominion over the creatures, right? In here it even says, you know, they're going to be afraid of you. Which we'll get to that in a second. What else? You shall not. What's that? You shall not. You shall not. Yeah, there is definitely some commands here, right? You shall and you shall not. So God gives commands, just like he did to Adam and Eve. In fact, anything else before I say what I'm about to say? Because there might be one other in there, actually, that you didn't say yet. It's really important. 
verse um Mm-hmm. Such as? Well, so this, the sign of this covenant is the rainbow. Uh-huh. Uh, but the sign of the covenant with Adam was you'll have everlasting life if you don't. Yeah, so the tree of life, the promise of life. Yeah, exactly. That's good. Uh, verse 6 tells you one other thing. The end of verse 6. Yeah, in the image of God. So honestly, yeah, honestly, if you look at this, the exchange between God and Noah here, it's like going all the way back to the beginning. Just exactly what God did with Adam. Same exact stuff. The only differences, which there are some differences, the only differences are a result of the new situation in which Noah finds himself. So for example, not only will he have dominion over the animals, but it says the animals will be afraid of you and dread you. He didn't say that to Adam. He probably didn't need to say that to Adam. Now, why does he need to say that to Noah? Animals were on the ark with him. Animals were on the ark with him. He cared for them. He cared for them. There you go. So maybe there's a closer relationship, right? If you think about it in the other direction, perhaps the animals are regressive, you know, more aggressive than they were before, right? There's death is at play within the world. Human beings are going to die. There, there's this sort of fear of peop- of animals taking life. Did you say something? Okay. Sorry. You did say something. Okay. <laughs> but you're not going to tell me. <laughs> yeah. They were hungry. Animals are hungry. People are hungry. Therefore, conflict. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to protect you. The animals are going to be afraid of you. In fact, not only am I going to give you the plants to eat, like I did to Adam and Eve, but now I'm going to give you the creatures of the earth to eat. You're going to eat meat. You're going to eat them. You may be afraid of them eating you, but you're going to eat them. Um, Go ahead, Vivian. So the animals weren't a problem after Adam? It only started happening after... Well, you know, no, I think they probably were, but what I'm trying, what what I'm getting at there is, uh, imagine the fear that probably was there in Noah's heart. I mean, you're down to literally one family left on earth, right? And then all these animals that you've been cooped up in an ark with for a year, and then that's all going to get released and multiplied. Who's going to multiply faster, the animals or or Noah and his family? Animals. Just that fear of being outnumbered, uh, kind of just out in the, uh, in the wilderness. Um, I'm not, I do think probably they were afraid of animals prior to this at that times, but maybe that was heightened, which is why God adds to it. Not only will you have dominion, but they will be afraid of you. They will dread you. Um, so, so you're going to get a taste of it's like it was with Adam, but not quite. The great American poet Longfellow said, uh, nature is red in tooth and cloth now. And uh, that's, that's what he's kind of talking about. Th- things aren't peaceful anymore. Things are going to be rough and tumble. But don't worry, I'm going to provide ways for you to s- stay alive in the rough and tumble environment of the world. Um, also, w- when he says be fruitful and multiply, he doesn't just say be fruitful and multiply. Now he says increase greatly, verse 7. So, again, you know, everything is just kind of being amped up. But other than that, it's the same. 
Now imagine, okay, imagine a team that was losing the game. They go into halftime. What do you expect the coach to say to the team? We're going to have to change, okay. Whatever we thought the game plan was, chuck it, here's the new game plan, right? But it's funny here, you know, it's kind of like halftime, and it didn't seem like the plan really worked all that well, and yet God comes into halftime and says, keep the same playbook. Be fruitful, multiply, I'm going to give you food, I'm going to protect you. I'm not changing anything. What does that tell you about God? He doesn't change. He gives a second chance. God is very gracious in this way. What else? He's not dependent on us. Yeah. So God's plans with all creation move forward irrespective of us, right? God is committed to his creation and what he's trying to do there regardless of what happens with each individual life or each person. God doesn't change. His plans don't change. He is very committed to creation. And in a way, that's what the whole covenant of Noah is about. It's about God putting his covenant bond behind his commitment to creation. Uh, In a time where it would have been really easy for Noah and his family to leave the ark and think, oh man, I don't know how this is going to go. It's just us. And all these animals are multiplying a lot faster than we are. There's a big old world out there with all kinds of natural disasters. There's not going to be a flood universal anymore, but there's all kinds of stuff. How are we ever going to survive? And God says, same playbook. I'm going to take care of you, and you're going to honor me in these ways. Right? It's great. I love the fact that when, I, when we go into God after we've failed and messed up, God doesn't say, you know, forget all the stuff I told you before. Let's, let's modify it for you. God brings us in and says, nope, I'm not changing. What we're going to keep doing is trying to get you to change. We're just going to get going back to the grindstone and work on you. I love that about God. That he doesn't adjust to me. He calls me to adjust to him. And all of creation to adjust to him. And that's the great thing about God. I mean, that's what makes God, God. If God merely adjusted to human beings, then it would be human beings who would be God, right? (laughs) Setting the terms for God. It can't be that way, really. Although our our relentless self-centeredness does sometimes get us to think that that is the case, that God is adjusting to us. But he's not. It also helps to address another myth. And that's this, that Christianity, because it's aimed at heaven, is of no earthly good. Right? Have you ever heard that idea? Like, you know, Christians are always thinking about going to heaven when they die, and so they really don't care about how things go in this world. It's really left to more secular people to care about the here and now, because Christians are too busy singing and dreaming about the sweet by and by. Uh, Now, I'll grant you, sometimes maybe that has been true. Christians have only sung about the sweet by and by in a way that was probably not biblical, right? In a too, you know, otherworldly escapist way. But there's nothing truly escapist about knowing that heaven's our home and that we are headed there and that God is bringing us to glory because we know that not only is God bringing us to glory, he's bringing all creation to glory. 
The plan to, to bring people to Christ and to bring people to heaven through Christ is not a plan to destroy the world and start over God's plan. It's to actually achieve the goal of God's plan in the beginning. Christianity is rooted in creation. It's founded on God's covenant promise with Noah here in this chapter. Um, Jesus didn't come to do anything other than fully fulfill what God promised through Noah. Isn't that cool? Uh, this is why Jesus said, you know, in the end, when I come back in my glory, he says, in that day it will be a, he calls it a regeneration of all things. He uses that word, regeneration. Uh, in uh, Greek, which is the New Testament language, it's the word palingenesis. Palin means again. Genesis means what? Beginning. Beginning again. Uh, and so Jesus says, when I return to the earth, it will be a beginning again. Not unlike what God started in the beginning. And not with any other purpose than what God had in the beginning. God always, he made Adam and Eve to take him to heaven. And, and through them to take the whole earth in some sense into heaven, right? To, to bring everything into his presence. That failed initially, but it didn't surprise God that it failed, but it failed. And God had already had this plan that he was going to still do it through his son. And so what God is doing through Noah is kind of, again, a foreshadowing of what he would do through Christ. He is restoring creation. Any thoughts about that? Uh, not, not, I have one question. Mm-hmm. No. no. Okay. So, you know, the garden wasn't heaven, and for this reason, Adam and Eve could still fall. Uh, Adam and Eve could still die. Because God said, if you don't obey this one commandment about the tree, you will surely die. Okay. Heaven is a place where we can't fall and we can't die. And what I'm saying is that God made Adam and Eve from the beginning with the purpose of bringing them to that place. See, think about if Adam and Eve had not disobeyed, just kind of a theoretical, what would have happened? <laughs> Them and all their posterity, their descendants, would have been resurrected to the heavenly life. And why don't you say, well, how do you know that? Well, the only way I know that is because that's what Jesus says he's doing, and he's the second Adam. And so had the first Adam succeeded, theoretically, that would have happened. Uh, garden of, uh, heaven is not the Garden of Eden. Heaven is heaven, right? The Garden of Eden was a place of probation, very much like our lives now, um, except now we're already automa we're automatically condemned when we come into the world, whereas they were in a neutral position. Heaven is a place where you're accepted and you can't fall. You can't sin against God in heaven. Glory, <laughs> right? You can't die in heaven. Right. Um, and, well, we could talk about a lot of differences, I think. There's no more probation in heaven, basically, is the, is the answer to that. Hmm. That makes sense, Drew? You might never have thought of it. I mean, that, that is maybe something you had never thought of, but... I guess I was thinking about experience. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that God. Well, God came and went in the garden. Uh, in heaven, He will not come and go. You know, um, the garden needed you know trees of knowledge of good and evil and the, the tree of life to be a sacrament of God's presence. In heaven, you will need no sacrament because you will have His presence directly. Boom. You know. Um, and so I think that was all along. I mean, you know, God. All, only plans God has are all along plans. He doesn't have plans that he makes on the go. All of his plans have always been his plans. If you can accept it tonight and think about that. That'll blow your mind if you start to really think about it. But there was never a time when God's plan was anything other than what his plan is. And always will be. And, you know, it's, it's incredible to think about. Now, we saw it a couple weeks ago when, when Tim was teaching that the Bible does speak sometimes of God as if you were human. Because from our perspective, it seems like God regrets and changes his mind. But in that case, I mean, it would be wrong to say that that is actually, literally true of God, that he's changing his mind or regretting. Right? That would, that would make God, well, not God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Prayer. That, that God loves to interact with his... God loves to respond to the prayers of his people. And God has, in fact, planned to do certain things on the basis of the prayers of his people. And, and uh, Abraham there was interceding, like we we're called to do. And if we intercede for someone, God may, in fact, save that person because of our intercession. But when he does, even though it'll seem like a change of mind on our side, because God wasn't going to save him, and then all of a sudden he did, that was a plan. God, only plans God has are forever plans, you know. Uh, otherwise, everything in this life is happening to God the same way it's happening to us. He's figuring it out as he goes. Is that comforting? That he's like, oh, wow, I didn't see that one coming. I've got to adjust the things we talked about in eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, we've got to adjust that. And he doesn't have to do that. He never does. In fact, that's, that's what you know, Noah's all about. God does not change his plans at halftime, ever. You know? He reveals his plans at certain times, and for us, it's new. And so we can say, wow, God shifted. But really, that was just from our perspective, because we hadn't heard of it before. You see? Deep, deep, deep stuff. All right, let's, let's look at the terms of the covenant now. So the purpose is to confirm God's commitment with creation. What are, what are the terms? Now, every covenant has terms. We've talked about this before in uh, various classes that we've done. But that every covenant has two parties, at least. And usually one party initiates, but the other party is called to respond in some way. And if you look down at the passage at verses 4 to 6, and then again at verses 8 to 11, you'll see the terms of the covenant um, laid out, both on what God is going to do and what man is supposed to do in response. So let's start kind of listing some things out. You might look down and skim through as you're calling things out. What is God promising to do or not to do? 
Yep, never again. What's that? Yep, he's going to give everything. Everything's at their disposal. Whatever they need to keep life going, God's given it to humanity. And he's not going to destroy everything again like he did with, you know, the flood generation. Anything else? All right, what about man? What is he supposed to do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't eat living things. Or don't, you know, well, I'll shorthand it by saying don't eat blood. Um, when it says there, don't eat, eat anything with the lifeblood in it, uh, most people agree that what that means is, make, you know, you have to make sure things are properly killed before you eat it. Don't eat things that are still living, with the blood still going through it. Make sure the blood is drained out. Why does God have to say that at this point? I don't know. Maybe they've never eaten animals before, and you know that they, they need a crash course on how to care for animal life. This is a good example of that. What else? Don't eat blood. Don't kill. What else? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And so you can kind of put that up here at, with, on what God will do, right? There will be a reckoning. When man's blood is shed, God himself will ensure there's a reckoning. There's justice. What else are people supposed to do? So you're applying that only to murder, is that right? Murder, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Be fruitful and multiply, yeah. They, they are to continue to multiply. Yeah, abundant, you know, increase greatly and abundantly. What else? Anything? Or we about got it? Well, there's one other thing. It has to do with the reckoning. How will God ensure that a reckoning happens? When a person kills another person. Blood for blood. Yep. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. And so there's an implicit commandment there for, well, what, what should we do? Lethal justice? Death sentence, lethal justice of any sort, yeah, whether so that's talking about by man. By man, that's what. It, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, most people in history have pointed to chapter nine, verse six, as the justification for the death penalty and for just war, and for necessary defense of someone's life using lethal force. That's a, obviously a huge debate in many different ways, but I think that that. It's sound to say that, yes, this is a reason why the death penalty exists.
Yeah. Do you notice a theme? Both sides, God's, God to us and us to God. Life. Every single thing here is about life. God says, I am going to protect your life and all life. I'm not going to destroy it all again ever. I'm going to protect it. And I'm going to give you everything necessary to preserve your life. I'm going to require it of, of people when they take your life. And you have to also protect life, even animal life. The blood that's in animals, you need to respect animals. Yeah, I've given them to you to eat, but don't disrespect them. Because they have my blood in them. Which is interesting. Uh, you know, Proverbs 12, uh, verse 10 says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal. A righteous man regards the life of his animal. But the wicked man doesn't even care for human life. That's what it says in Proverbs 12, 10. Uh, that, I think that comes from this scene with Noah. This idea that you know, a godly human being even respects the life of animals. But especially, he says, you're to respect the life of people. And in some way, you have to set up a system of justice to make sure that those who kill don't get away with it. Or else there will be lawless murder in the world. Uh, most people point to this chapter as the foundation not only for the death penalty, but for all legitimate human government. Uh, Ross um, one of the commentators in this passage says, human government was instituted in these early provisions. It was instituted in these early provisions. That the idea that human beings were going to need to collaborate together in an orderly fashion from the Lord to ensure that justice is maintained for the protection of life. That's government. And so government is not an evil thing in and of itself. Government is a gift from God. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, Christians, you are to respect government. Uh, you are to pay your taxes because the, the governor is a servant of God for your good. Um, and by the way, he was writing when Nero was the emperor. A real bad dude. You would not have voted for him <laughs> had he been up for election. And yet Paul still says, respect him. And because he is there for good, he he, in general, punishes evil and rewards good. Now, is it true that he didn't always do that well and that no human government's perfect? Yes. But God is not instituting perfect here. He's instituting life-preserving here. You see. The only government that's perfect is whose? God's, Christ's, right? The king. Uh, all human government's going to be a mix. But yet human government is extraordinarily necessary to maintain human and animal life. And all things, right? Um, and, you know, if you've never traveled to a part of the country or a part of the world where government is really bad and maybe part, mainly non-existent, you probably don't know how blessed we are. <laughs> uh, I've been to one place in the world that I think could be described that way. And it is not good. When human government is not functioning, it is not a good thing situation. Even bad government is better than no government, right? Because it maintains the boundaries of the sanctity of life, which is established in the covenant with Noah. Any thoughts? It's 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's just a Yeah, more more rules, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, God God always deals with us this way, right? We're we're in a covenant, He He promises and He requires, He calls. For sure. There's ne- there's never it's never a one way street. But it's always initiated by him. And notice there's not a word in this covenant about if you don't do these things, I'll pull back on this. There's none of that in this. God just unilaterally says, I'm going to do this no matter what. But still, because I'm doing this, you need to do this. Right? Does that make sense? There's a lot in there. We said a lot there. Any any other thoughts or questions? All right. Um, This means that faith... Is pro-life, and I'm not. I'm not just speaking um, politically, because because honestly, life isn't really a political issue, right? Life is a is a God issue, according to God. Uh, obviously, politics are involved in it because God here did institute a political system to uh, enforce the laws about life. But it's impossible, really, to believe in God and to follow God without having a commitment to human life and even animal life. Because it was created by God. Uh, listen to our, um, this is great. Have, have you ever heard, I mean, I'm sure you heard of it, our, our larger catechism in church, we, in this church, we have two, uh, three different uh, documents that are known as our confessional standards. That they're, the, um, that they're the statement of our faith. Two of them are catechisms. One's the shorter, which we've been reading here on Sunday night. The other one's the larger, and the name explains the difference. One's larger than the other. Um, in the section on the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments, it is absolutely, well, first of all, it's convicting. Because it goes through in detail listing all the different ways we can either keep or disobey any, all the Ten Commandments. Listen to what it says about the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And I want to tell you, this is what it means to be pro-life. Okay, It's not just a political position, it's a lifestyle. Here's what it says. Uh, The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of any life. The just defense of life against violence, patiently bearing the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, sober use of meat, drink, medicine, sleep, labor and recreations, charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speech and behavior towards others, forbearance or uh, patience, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, requiting good for evil instead of evil for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. That's how you keep the commandment, thou shalt not kill. That's pro-life right there. Here's how you break that commandment. The sins forbidden are all taking away the life of ourself or of others except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. Sinful anger, 
hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions and distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. I love that. Where can we find that? Oh, well, um, yeah, that's the larger catechism. So, uh, yeah, there's a link to it on our website. So if you go on the Greater Hope website to What We Believe, or, yeah, I think it's called What We Believe, About Us, What We Believe, uh, and click where it says Larger Catechism, it'll take you to the, our denomination website where it has the, catech- the Larger Catechism. Uh, it does that for every single commandment, by the way, free of charge, for you to meditate on, and, and if you ever think you're not a sinner, go, go read that. And if you ever think you don't need a Savior, go read that. And if you ever think that Jesus wasn't amazing, go read that and see what he did, all that he did to obey for you. It's incredible. But at any rate, all that is kind of what God is saying to Noah. I want you to maximally be pro-life on everything you do, not just in some narrow political way. Be pro-life in all of life. Protect life. Love life. And make sure that you're not only protecting your own, but also others' life. All right, last thing. The sign of the covenant. Uh, God gives the rainbow, right? We know that. uh, You've heard that since you were a child, most of us probably. You know, God put the rainbow in the clouds. But notice what he said. Um, It is a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse uh, 12. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, when it says, I have set my bow in the cloud... Just like in English, the word bow in Hebrew means bow, like this kind of bow. And if you ever notice, a rainbow is shaped like, that's why it's called a rainbow, is it's shaped like a bow and arrow, right? And uh, when it says, I've set my bow in the clouds, it literally means I've hung my bow up in the clouds. And a lot, I mean, so many Jewish and Christian scholars and Bible students have looked at this and their minds have exploded with rich reflection when God says, I've hung my bow up in the clouds, notice you know, the shape of the rainbow. Where is the bow pointing? No longer down at the earth. Uh, his, his bow during the flood was fully drawn on the earth, and he unloaded on people. And one day he will unload on the wicked again. But for now, the bow is hung, pointing up, pointing to himself. Uh, in fact, the cross, you know, of course, is the greatest example of how God pointed the bow of his justice at himself and took the arrow so that those who deserved it could get better than, than, that, better than justice. We could get mercy and grace. And so it says here, you know, I'm going to put that bow in the cloud so that every time it comes up, I will see it and remember the covenant. God talking. So who will remember when they see it? God. Who is God telling that he will remember it? Noah. Think about that. Because there's a huge window here to how God brings assurance into our lives too. Um, He could have said, Noah, I've put the bow in the cloud so that when you see it, you'll remember because you're so forgetful. So remember it. Or I'll put my bow in the clouds and when you see it, you'll remember how good you are. And how pleased I am because you're a great man. No, instead he says, I'm going to put my bow in the clouds so that when I see it, 
I will remember the covenant. And now I'm telling you so that when you see it, you'll remember that I'm remembering. And right there is a great idea. If you don't know how to be assured of, of where you stand with God, don't look at yourself. Don't look at what you've done for God to find that assurance, right? Don't look to something that you have to do to gain assurance. Look to God looking to the sign which makes him remember. <laughs> right? Remember God's remembering. Uh, in other words, I, I, it, it does. Well, it could. But in the Bible, it's funny. God often says this. I will remember this, that, or the other. And um, each time, I think what it's, what it's saying, and I know that you know that he's not forgetting. I'm not acting like you do. But, but I, I want to explain why he says this, because it is an odd thing for God to say, I will remember. Um, when God says, I'll remember, it always means, this is another him describing himself as a human, it means, um, I will show and demonstrate to you my ongoing commitment to what I've already promised to do. From your perspective, it'll look like, wow, God remembered. Because he came through on what he said. He remembered me. The reality is, God never forgot you. And he never forgot what he did and said he would do and what he was going to do. The only plans God ever had were the always plans. But from our perspective, absolutely. It looks every bit like, it looks every bit like God is remembering all of a sudden. Which is such an encouragement when he comes through. Have you ever had those moments where you just knew God was remembering you? Isn't that good? So encouraging. And every time you look at a rainbow... You ought to stop and think, God, you remember what you promised to Noah and all creation. Um, isn't that cool? Um, hmm. the, the rainbow means a lot of things today, right? But we can't forget what it meant from God's perspective, right? It meant, look, I'm remembering. I hung my bow up in the clouds not to shoot you again. The time of peace is here. Watch me remember and be assured. I could say more, and I want to say more, but I've got to stop.